Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has most definitely owned their share of belts that were purely ornamental, did not go through any belt lubes, did not hold up any pants or skirts or anything, um, but really, really looked good. <laughs> um, if you know, you know, right? <laughs> I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 148. Today's guest is Sarah, a creative marketing professional and founder of Club Sandwich, a New York City-based vintage resale brand specializing in 70s, 80s, and pre-loved designer pieces. Our conversation is what they call a long boy because we talked about a lot of different important and interesting topics. We'll start by calling out the sort of invisible marketing techniques that very successfully, very sneakily, fill us with a sense of need on a regular basis. And we'll talk about how we can be more mindful and hopefully overcome them. Then we'll shift into talking about how to build a wardrobe that embodies the slow fashion way of life and how to avoid the trap of novelty items that can only be worn once or twice or only with a really specific bra and very specific shirt and very socks and very specific shoes, which is something... I have done to myself quite a bit. So we're going to talk about that. And then we'll touch on the importance of closet organization and how to approach a closet clean out in a productive way. Throughout this, we'll be sharing our love of vintage and secondhand clothing. So yeah, a lot to cover today. In fact, this conversation is so long that there won't be any audio essays in this episode, but... Don't worry, we have a few more episodes this year for the rest of them. And in fact, I have one more spot for an audio essay. So if you are a small business owner who was too shy to submit one earlier, if you get it to me by 1218, that is next Sunday after this episode comes out, you can secure that last spot of the year. If you miss this round, there will be another chance in the middle of next year. So stay tuned for that. All right, well, let's jump right into my conversation with Sarah. And after that, I'll tell you about a problem plaguing Amazon and a lot of other platforms, fraudulent reviews, and how they happen. It's a complicated story. All right, let's go. Sarah, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Yeah, hi. I'm Sarah Graham. I am the founder, the curator, and kind of the head chef of Club Sandwich. It is a vintage and pre-loved designer um, clothing resale brand that I started about a year and a half ago. And I also um, freelance in the fashion and beauty industry as a creative. I'm so excited to talk to you about that because I know that there is a very deep connection between the work you do in your day job and your business. Like what led you to start your business? You know, I think that there are probably, I suspect, I do know already actually, because we talked before, but <laughs> yes, <laughs> I also have just found like, this is the connection for so many of us. So you are an expert in the area of marketing, right? I am. So I thought we could get started by talking about marketing because I think, I mean, I know because I've worked on the other side as a buyer and I've been in these meetings that there are a lot of things, sort of like unseen forces around us that convince mm. us that we need things. 
It's so true. And right now we are in the thick of it, right? We're in Q4. We're <laughs> like, all the companies are bombarding us with marketing messages. And, you know, my inbox is full. I, of course, so I, I work in a creative capacity supporting marketing, but I've done this for like 15 years um, in both corporations and startups. And mm-hmm. You know, I subscribe to all these emails. I follow all these people on Instagram, and it's just nonstop. Like, we just got out of Black Friday, and now Black Friday is like a two week time period. <laughs> Minimally. You're, <laughs> you're like, where's the deal? Like, is it going to get better? You know, there's mm-hmm. bait and switch. Like, used to be something that people, you know, it was, it was a crime in advertising. And now you just see it so much uh, because I think the landscape is just so noisy. And Mm -hmm. this is the attention economy, right? So it's like, who can be the loudest? Who can say the most? Um, Yeah, and it it, it can be really overwhelming as a consumer. Yeah, I mean, the the emails are real. And the texts, I like, I don't know when World Market got my phone number, but they text me like every (laughs) single day. Who's I, texting you? Which which brand? World World Market. It's World not Market. Your clothing brand, but they are. They want to hang like, out with you. They want to be your friend, right? <sighs> I think that there was a time, like, I want to say it was about three or four years ago, that Dustin and I really wanted a Soda Stream, and I was like price comparing, and I was like, oh, we should just go get one at Bed Bath and Beyond. I see that they have them. We could drive and pick one up today. But what was confusing about it is it was literally like twice the price of everywhere else. And I was mm. like, oh, I know. I remember now. I learned this from Broad City. You got to get the coupon for Bed yes. Bath & Beyond. And then it'll be the same price. And plus, we'll get to go have it today. <laughs> right. Um, so he- here's the thing. I signed up to get the coupons. We never actually went and bought the Soda Stream ever. <laughs> and so Bed Bath & Beyond has also been texting me for years. <laughs> sure. I know those coupons. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hook. It's a hook, right? But this is just like one of many. And so I thought we could talk a little bit about the ads and marketing tricks that we might not we might not be as aware of. Like we we get the checks, we see them, although I feel like they barely sink into my subconscious now. You mm-hmm. might argue otherwise that they're in there, they're ready for me to go to Bed Bath and Beyond. But what are some <laughs> other tricks that we should be mindful of that we might not be? Yeah, I think I love your I love your use of the word mindful because I think that's what it is. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're living in these times and for all intents and purposes, like I, I've had a great career. I love what I do, but I also just see how, how much need is created where perhaps there is no need. Yeah. Um, And I think that you can see that in performance marketing tactics, which you know, there, there's not sort of anything aspirational. There's not something beautiful and creative that kind of sucks you in with storytelling. It's just straight up like geo-targeting. So this is, if you have your location on, turned on, you know, on your phone, like essentially companies that have your data can track where you live and (laughs) track down like what stores you're driving by and what billboards you might be seeing. And they can serve up Um, you know, an advertisement in a location that you frequent um, so that it really does become part of your everyday experience. Um, It's kind of (laughs) crazy. It is. I mean, and like if you have an app for a brand and you happen to like walk anywhere near that store and you get a push notification, that's not a coincidence. That is real. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Big Brother is watching. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And wants you to buy new socks, you know? When people were really, I mean, I'm sure there are people who still believe this, that there were like tracking devices in the COVID vaccine. Right. Uh, I was like, guys. <laughs> Guys, they're in our phones, actually. They're in our phones. Yeah, seriously. I remember one time having a conversation. I did not Google this at all or in any way about pool slides with someone. And then suddenly I was getting all these Instagram ads for pool slides. I mean, wow. your phone is is giving you away, everyone. It's so true. And, you know, I, I imagine that companies are, are selling our data, you know, and so we really mm-hmm. have to be careful who we're subscribing to and, you know, how we're opting in for these messages, because then they have our emails and our phone numbers and certain companies, you know, will give that away for the right price. Oh, it's true. I mean, I've definitely worked for companies where we we paid money to get that kind of information. And I couldn't yeah. believe how granular, how detailed the information we would get would be. I mean, it was it was shocking. That's crazy. You know, beyond just like where someone lives, but like their income and like their education and where right. else they shop and how much money they spend on certain categories of product every month and just where they go. You know, it was it was really, really shocking. I mean, there was a time when retailers would sort of have to speculate mm-hmm. on who their customer was and now they can get all of that for the right price. It's true. And you know, even something like, you know, even social media and TikTok, which I don't spend any, I don't spend any time on TikTok. My husband and I were talking about like, (laughs) are we now in the, like, we've been through like LiveJournal, Facebook, MySpace, Instagram, is like TikTok going to be like the platform that we just are like, we're too old? Um, I mean, I I don't know. So I will tell you, like, I, I just do not love video period. I'm the same way. Right? I like to look at photos. I love reading things. I definitely get nostalgic for the era when everyone had a blog and there was just so much stuff to read. That's way more enjoyable to me. And I definitely never got into YouTube in the way that a lot of people did because once again, I just like don't want to watch a video. I don't know why. And I've tried to love TikTok. There are things on there that I like. But in general, I think I can't get past the production value or like the repetition, right? Yeah, it's it's like, give me some, give me some glamour. Give me like a little bit of something to aspire to. I don't want to see someone in their jammies just like, you know, uh, what are these like memes where, see, I sound old now. Um, (laughs) Just like whatever the dance trend is, or like, I'm just, I can't. And I, but I bring up TikTok because, you know, what I do know about it is like, it really does serve up. And I'm just like, that kind of technology, like, frightens me a little bit. And maybe that also makes me sound old. But I think that like, the way that marketing is actually able to track behaviors, you know, that's the same realm that we're in in social media. And Mm -hmm. so also just to be mindful about how much we interact, because TikTok is a business too. Like Instagram is a business. Like they want our attention and they want our time and they want us to like interact with these interfaces that a lot of us are just like renting space on if we have small businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I think it's interesting just from a, a technology and, and digital standpoint, how evolved things have become just in the last 10 years. I agree. Listen, social media has many positive 
attributes, right? Like it's a, especially during the pandemic, it's like a really great way to connect with people and build community and not feel so alone. But it's also really important for all of us to remember that in social media, we, we are the product. And I think that's like a Mm. cliche at this point, but ultimately like it's our behavior and all of our likes and dislikes are, you know, the way we interact with these apps, our data as a whole, that is the product. Right. You know, and I, I like, I mean, I don't know it, that when I get into my head about that, I definitely freak out. Although I will say, I know that the TikTok algorithm is like on point and and really understands its its users. I don't think uh, Instagram is completely there. Like I, it serves me a lot of content that I'm just not interested in. Yeah, I'm the same way. And I think that it's actually like devolved over time, maybe with just more ads. I don't know what's going on. That might be true, too. I mean, my husband and I were talking about reels and like the kind of reels Mm. that we get served. And I was like, you know, for the most part, it's like primarily like vintage sellers. And I'm like, that that makes sense. That's like my area of interest. And, you know, that's primarily what I see. I don't get as many of the like big influencers or anything like that, which I'm grateful for. And I asked like, Dustin, like, what do you get? And he was like, uh, it keeps giving me videos of women with like bouncy boobs. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, like the Instagram algorithm is just so like Fred Flintstone. I where it's like, you checked mail at some point. We this is what we think you want. Totally. <laughs> it's so weird (laughs) it's really weird and then you're just in this cycle it's just this non-stop video video suggested for you and you're like really i looked at one dog video and now it's dogs with baby voices and now it's dogs with baby voices (laughs) eating carrots like it just gets so meta and like so yeah yeah it's 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 really odd but nonetheless I mean, the things that we are doing on Instagram and I mean, who could who could forget Facebook? I forget Facebook a lot, actually. I think they probably harvested way more data from us when we were all using Facebook than they have from Instagram because it was so much more detailed and like, you know, Facebook could easily identify your friends and your relatives and who knows what else like from your posts, at least Instagram especially the way people use it now, it might be a little bit less apparent because there's so many Finstas out there. But I mean, I think, I I think a lot about now how, you know, like on Instagram, so much of the content is ads, but it can be hard to distinguish. And I was, I was talking to a friend last week about, you know, Saturday morning cartoons when we were kids and how I sometimes remember the ads from that period more than the shows. Mm. And as a child, it's like, it becomes really difficult to parse them out. And then it took us on this like mental journey where we got to like teen magazines where once again, it was really hard to distinguish which was an ad and which was like actual like ad- beauty advice or clothing. Yes. Advertorials. It was, right? Yeah. Uh, advertorials yeah. are like, I, yeah. I, I think that like perhaps social media is the sneakiest with ads, because it's blended in to the people in your life. And so, yeah. I mean, I like I could talk about influencers for a hundred years and my thoughts about it. I <laughs> have been wanting to do an influencer episode for a long time, but you I just should. like don't even know where to begin. I need to find an influencer who wants to talk about it. You Ooh. know? <laughs> I'll think on it. I know a few. Okay, so yeah. Like yeah. Businesses out of it. Yeah. Send them it's my fascinating. Way. It's funny you talk about children's cartoons because my husband and I were talking about He Man. 
Ah, um, invented uh, to sell toys. Yes. And so what's really interesting about the He-Man series, and hopefully I'm getting this correct, but we were like, was it a Saturday morning cartoon? We were like, was it Hanna-Barbera? Like we were trying to like understand when He-Man was on television. And my, my husband's a little bit older than me. And like, we couldn't, like, I remember, you know, Looney Tunes being on Saturday. Like, I remember all the Saturday morning programming. And I remember the like late 80s, early 90s toys Mm -hmm. commercials that were in it. But like late 70s He-Man era, there were laws against advertising to children. Right. And so that's like an 80s phenomenon, you know, that like, and something about the He-Man franchise actually like was pivotal in selling children toys for the first time in the modern way that we know it. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I've been doing a bunch of research on that because I'm working on an episode for the end of the year about toys and like the hype around toys and actually i mean this will not surprise you every time i come across a strange ethical quandary that relates to consumerism even like in the most tertiary way it always ends up being the result of something that ronald reagan did in the 80s Mm. like always like that's why we don't have home ec anymore because they thought it would be better to teach us job skills so now people can't make or repair their clothes or cook their own food. You know, like that, I mean, it turned us into like uber consumers. And that was like also allowing children to be bombarded by advertising as even as far as they're literally being shows that were invented solely to sell toys. Right. That came from his administration. Yeah. Yeah. Craziness. I think He-Man might've been syndicated. So like where I grew up, it was like on after school Mm. on like a local station yeah, yeah. As an adult, we can step back and be like, wow, I, I really see that people were trying to sell us stuff. But the thing is, like, that yeah. was just the beginning, right? Because it's around us all the time. Like, I was telling you when we were preparing for this episode, I even feel like it's as subtle as magazines and blogs being like, this is the thing you need to have. You need to have this bag. You need this Yeah, coat. like the 10 must-have yes. for fall. And it's just constant. It's like for every month now. I know, I know. Or like 50% of like BuzzFeed is listicles of like the top 39 things you should get on Amazon fashion right now. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those listicles, like from a content perspective, they do really well. Like they're, they're essentially clickbait. So that's why we're just inundated with them because people click on them because they're short and snappy, you know? Yeah. People love a listicle, you know, and then they buy it. And I even get served those in my Apple News feed. And and I think that's where mm. it can become sort of confusing because you're like, Apple News is where I get news. Well, here's a listicle about the things I should buy from Amazon. That must be important or, right. I don't know, reliable, like a good source of information. I should listen to this. Like these are the things I should definitely buy from Amazon. Although like every once in a while, if I'm feeling super trollish, I'll – read one of those and follow the links to the Amazon product listings and then read the reviews and have a good laugh. <laughs> but like an evil that laugh. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's being an informed consumer, you know, because we have all this information at our fingertips. And like, I actually love, I don't know if you've ever done an episode on this, but like user reviews is fascinating. Like it's actually a way that we can all like band together and be smarter consumers and help one another. Oh my God, I agree. So when I worked at ModCloth, it was the first place I'd worked 
I mean, this we're talking like 2012-ish. It was the first place I'd worked where we had user reviews and we had a very seriously like committed customer base that would write reviews and post photos of everything they bought. Like, I mean, everything would get hundreds of reviews and they were super helpful, not even just for customers, but like for us as buyers to go read them and see the photos. And we weren't allowed to reorder anything that had below a four star rating. And like, I felt like that made us really unique. Then I went to work at Nasty Gal where we didn't have reviews. And I was like, I remember talking to my best friend who also worked there and I said, I really feel like it's a miss that we don't have reviews. And she said to me, Amanda, if we had reviews on our products, no one would buy anything because it's Mm. all so disappointing when you get it. And I was like, wow, you just like blew my mind. I mean, you're right, but I just got this like weird, like sweaty arm hair standing on end moment. Like, oh my God, we're gonna go out of business. Yeah. Um, And we did get reviews eventually. And we literally, and I'm pretty sure this is illegal, but we would have like people from marketing deleting the bad reviews. Yeah. I, I know that you can't reword any reviews. And so deleting them seems sketch. Yeah. 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 I mean, I have noticed, and I'm sure, you know, this is probably not something that all of everyone listening to this knows, but like, especially on Amazon, there are a lot of like sketchy review situations where they're mm. like, I don't know. I listened to an episode of a podcast a long time ago about how like companies were like randomly ship out units to people of things that they didn't order because it would allow like some sort of pathway into writing reviews on Alibaba or Amazon as oh, if wow. it was from a customer. And so they would be like super glowing reviews of everything. Um. Mm. And I definitely see that on Amazon a lot. Like, I'm like, I don't think that this really changed your life the way you're talking about. I mean, it's just a bath mat. (laughs) Right. Right. Does it really have the power to do that? I doubt it. I'm always like, let's sort by worst review to best. (laughs) Well, and some of them are so lyrical. I actually love doing that with... um, with movies and seeing how people like, I love trashy eighties horror movies. <laughs> and sometimes the reviews are just like, so amazing. Like people get so granular and um, theoretical about it. <laughs> I feel like on Amazon too, you can really find some, some gems. Oh man. I feel like if, I mean, outside of clothes, anything else inevitably leads to someone having diarrhea. <laughs> 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 I don't know or like a weird rash photo I've seen a lot of those I was on there yeah. I was on Amazon like early in the pandemic and I was like you know what my life is falling apart I'm gonna get myself one of those foot peels right that's gonna Ooh. like I mean this is like the psychology of buying right like I know that like I lost my job and I'm trapped at home and there's a scary illness going around that might kill me so I think the best thing I can do in this situation is buy a foot peel and I'll feel like I have a whole new lease on life. And I started going deep into reviews on there and there were so many terrifying photos of horribly, oh God. horribly inflamed feet. I, that's a diplomatic <laughs> way to say it. It was like really, I'm glad for those people. I'm grateful. You know, I didn't buy the things where people had blisters all over their feet or rashes that spread up their legs, but I... It was horrific. 
<laughs> yeah. And even that's like great information. Like, thank God that those folks posted pictures for you. Yeah, seriously. I mean, I, I definitely think it's really important for us to read reviews. And I think that often we are in such a rush to buy something and the process of buying something is sped up to like one click purchasing in so many ways that we don't, mm. it's like we don't get the space to like think about it and check out reviews and comparison shop. It's like, oh, well, all I had to do is like use my face ID and now I'm buying, I bought it. Yeah, no, you're so right. And I just had an experience like this. I, I used to be very anti Amazon, like would never ever purchase anything. And then for my business, it seems to be a necessary evil would love any tips and tricks for not supporting Amazon, but like buying bags, buying, you know, random things that, um, you know, can be delivered quickly and whatever. But I found that there's an automatic replenishment that like for certain items. That oh, seem no. Like might, yeah, that seemed like you might purchase them often. And I could not figure out where the button was to be like, no, thank you. One time purchase <sighs> like by design. You know, that's like a UX design thing where it's mm -hmm. like, let's make this really hard, like the unsubscribe button. Um, yeah. And it was maddening. And now I think I might be on some like quarterly order of something that is not necessary. I have noticed that every brand is trying to get you on some sort of recurring subscription. Um, you yeah. know, whether it's Amazon or it's like the place you buy makeup or vitamins or shampoo or hair dye. I mean, right. I think the early days of subscription were more like boxes. Like that's what people are thinking of, like Birchbox, which I heard is going RIP soon mm. um but like and you know then it turned into like stitch fix or that what's that one it's like live it's not live laugh love fab fit fun <laughs> uh-huh I yeah. like live laugh love though I know they should <laughs> someone should make that but so someone should it was like okay I, I actually I know exactly how this all happens right how it transfers into other industries it's like you're sitting in a meeting and someone's like man I really I really love what they're doing over there at Live Laugh Love. I heard that their like annual revenue is a hundred million dollars. Like how right. do we how do we apply this to our business? And it's like, huh, what if we put socks on subscription? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's like it's a numbers game because then you can, you know, forecast that you'll be able to make this revenue because you've got the subscriptions. And, you know, especially if it's like you have to commit to a certain amount of time, a six month subscription, a year subscription until you can opt out. Uh, and yeah, it just it becomes only good for the company and not so great for the consumer, because I think, you know, we had talked about in our initial conversation that like if a company is doing it right and delivering a good product, you don't need to buy more X, Y, Z. Like they <laughs> nailed it the first time. <laughs> no right. need for more. Right. I mean, I mean, right there, right there is the truth about a lot of the fashion industry as we live right now that. Unfortunately, the the planned obsolescence, uh, the period of t until obsolescence is so short at this point that you do need more because, yeah. you know, you might only get to wear those socks twice before they're filled with holes and they might mm -hmm. not be repairable and or you might not know how to. And so you may as well just have socks on subscription. Right. It's just that throwaway kind of um, cycle that we're in with fashion because the quality is so awful. And I think about that with vintage resale. It's like, what is actually going to happen to vintage with the quality of what is out there now? Because even fast fashion, 
quote, fast fashion from the 80s, like mass produced or mass produced polyester things from the 70s, like still hold up in a way, you know, and have a craftsmanship that like just doesn't exist now. So like, will there even be vintage? Because there will be nothing. I wonder about that. Because like, I think in the very early aughts, basically before the 2008 recession, I think that even fast fashion, like Forever 21, H&M stuff was much higher quality before than it was after. And then all of the brands that had been making pretty decent quality stuff at that point also went down that path. And so you can still, I mean, it's becoming less and less. Like you can still find nice, high quality clothing, like when you're thrifting or shopping secondhand from before 2008. And it will, it will be nice. But man, after that, like, I, I wonder too, because I definitely remember that like time period as the era of like, I'm going to go to Forever 21 every week and buy clothes that I'm only going to wear this weekend. They're probably not going to make it past this weekend. I might have to carry a safety pin with me just in case something about this goes awry, even though I've only worn it once. Yeah, I I definitely relate to that. And I think that when I was like in my early 30s and starting my corporate career in fashion, like, again, all the subscriptions to emails, all the research I was constantly doing about other e-com sites, like I was in the mix and I have never been a huge consumer. I've always been a hardcore secondhand shopper. Like I do love to mend things on my own and make things last as long as possible just because I, I like old clothes. I think they just feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm totally guilty of like wearing threadbare things and being like, okay, it's time to part with this. But I remember that time in my life of just like having a paycheck, like having a steady paycheck for the first time and like wanting to spend it at H&M. And that was part of like blowing off steam, like walking to the H&M after mm-hmm. getting out of the office on a Thursday and like buying all these clothes that would sit. And I might wear them once or twice. And then I had this like really incongruous wardrobe of things that didn't go with each other. So like- <laughs> I know I this feeling too. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I got this like novelty top. Cause like- I It was all it. novelty, right? It was all novelty. And yeah. Like, I, I didn't learn how to get dressed because I was like in that like emotional purchase zone Mm -hmm. for like years. Years, yeah. And I finally got a job at like a fashion company where, you know, like people really dressed for it and there was like a certain aesthetic. And I was like, I need a pair of fucking, excuse my language, black pants. Like I don't own a workhorse pair of pants. And it really changes the way that you shop when you start thinking about like what goes with what in your wardrobe and you purchase emotionally less when it comes to clothing, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, man, I just feel this so much. I specifically remember this moment because I've moved a lot in my adult life for my career. Mm. So it's like constant, like packing up the wardrobe, right? Mm. Putting together stuff that's going to get donated, that kind of stuff. And I really remember specifically when I was moving back from the East Coast back to Portland, and it was around 2010, and packing up my clothes, and I was like, everything here is such like a one-hit wonder Yeah. of like, what am I going to... There's only one way you can wear this and one place you can wear this. And to be honest, I've already worn it once or twice. So it's probably going to disintegrate at any moment. And feeling just like so sad. Like, I'd spent so Mm. much money, like, over the years, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's true. And, like, clothes, I mean, for me, clothes are so 
personal and like I get attached to certain items in my closet because they I have memories associated with them like I'll hold on to a blazer that I got like a promotion in or like a secondhand thing I got from a swap from like a good friend who moved away and it reminds me of her and like the more that those things are quality the longer they'll last and the more we can have more experiences in them and like the novelty trend cycle that's just never ending and like you know the the website drops of a thousand new items a day it's just you're never going to learn how you're never going to learn your preferences you're never going to learn how to express your personal style and like really be connected to your clothing in a way that's meaningful and to your point it's like at the end of the day you have a big pile of things that you never wear that like becomes a totally burden. a burden and it's it's sad yeah it is sad yeah. it's sad and you know i i i like having conversations about that because I think a lot of people who start conversations about like sustainable fashion, slow fashion, they probably have had that experience of looking at all their clothes and realizing that Mm. there's not a lot of life there, that it was a waste of money, that this just feels like this burden, this stuff that you just have to keep schlepping around from apartment to apartment. And yeah, people don't talk about it. And I think it's important to say like, hey, I, I've i I've lived that. I had a bunch of really dumb clothes that I could only like, I could only wear this to a party and that can only be at a club. And this one, I have to like walk right. really weird because my it's not wide enough for my legs to move apart to walk. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes, yes. Right. All these like almost okay, but not quite right like pieces. And, and I yeah. think about like how like the industry has been serving that to us for so long and we just accept it we're like well we don't deserve better than that i don't deserve something that uh i can ride my bike in without it ripping (laughs) right right If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. 
St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme, like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans, and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at The Pewter Thimble. You and I were talking before, we talked about how so much of marketing really preys on women and it or it reinforces this idea that like lives in a lot of our minds where we're like not good enough and we will be good enough if we buy this thing but if it doesn't work for us it's uh it's not the thing's fault it's our fault like we're the problem oh 
so, so much. Like I really, I really feel that. And I think it's, it's really toxic. And the, maybe it's not the irony, that's not the right word, because these two facts play together that like women are mostly marketed to and they have the biggest consumer share, like they're the ones shopping. And Mm -hmm. so of course the marketing messages then become like targeted to women and their insecurities and like societally there's, you know, living in a patriarchal culture, like the insecurities of women are something that like are systematic and political and, and the marketing just fits right into that. And so Mm -hmm. we end up not feeling enough. And then also, yeah, having the burden of like not being able to hold on to our money. And I think that like there's a very feminist action and there's a lot of power in like holding on to your money. Um, Mm -hmm. Because agreed. Yeah. Like you're every time we give a company our money and, and of course we can't be like super informed about every single purchase we make and sometimes we have to make purchases out of convenience and like Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of just like doing the best you can with what you have but I do think that like to look deeper into the messages from the lens of like targeting women even the whole like I was involved in a lot of marketing during like the trend that's now dying about like being a boss babe and like oh well I mean I worked at girl boss world headquarters so yeah like, <laughs> it was a movement you know and like yeah. I was in my early 30s and that really resonated with me Me too me too I was like finally yeah you know it, like it's it's our time to shine yeah <laughs> I was like you know totally buying into it but the the funny thing and I feel like what women are all feeling now is that we are fucking exhausted and like <laughs> I yeah. bet that we will start seeing marketing messages about like, we are enough and like, we should just rest, you know, it's like, because that's the zeitgeist and whatever we're kind of feeling, it's just blown up and then like distilled in a way to sell us things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, the irony is not lost on me that this in, like fashion, beauty, even the media around fashion, the work is done by, by women. Right. It's like not just even women in the factories making the clothing, but those are the women who are most often forgotten. But it's also women for the most part who are doing the buying, the designing, handling the production, you know, managing the retail stores, working in the retail stores. My first buying job you know, it was it's your classic. I have yet to have a buying job that isn't like this. Open floor plan seating, right? The yeah. fashion does not do cubicles because it's like doesn't look good. It's not chic, right? Not yeah. Chic. So yeah. you know, basically, what we're saying is people sitting in rows at tables, maybe with a divider between them and the next row. And at, at my company, like we were in this huge two floor building, all open floor plan, except there were offices along one side of the building that ran the length, and that's where the executive sat. And mm. everyone who sat in an office, except for one person, was a man and was a white man, right? Wow. And everybody out in the open seating, I mean, and when I say everybody, I mean like 99.9% of the people working out in the open seating were women. And right. I realized after working there for a few years that here we were, like we we were fueling this company's profits by like making the product exist by managing all the finances, by doing all of this work. And 
it was like we not only was there a very low ceiling on our careers also, but there was sort of like a cognitive disconnect between like we are people who are also the consumers of what this company sells. And we could be making decisions that could make this product more ethical, fit people better, add more sizes, Mm -hmm. be better quality, not give us camel toe, whatever it was. And yet we were choosing to play along with that. And I mean, it comes back to this like patriarchal structure where like if I had gone into a meeting and said, I think it's bullshit that our biggest size is large and it's really more like a medium like, right. we need to stop this, I probably would have gotten in trouble. Like, it's not like I even had the freedom to do it, but we just, I always joked that I felt like I worked in an all-girls school because I felt like we had no agency. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I feel that. Like, the fashion industry does just, it's a lot of women, you know, and then there's a lot of men at the top making decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating, too, to see how men are making decisions about how women want to be portrayed, you know, or like, um, what what are those aspirational moments? Who is the busy, engaged woman who can do it all? You know, and a lot of those tropes are like quite toxic. Yeah, um, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and quite unrealistic as well. But we're surrounded by them all the time. And um, yeah, it's just interesting to think about. And, you know, I think marketing can be really interesting because there's so much psychology in it. And when it's done well and it speaks to a truth, there can be some like beauty and art in it, but like the watered down, unfortunately, a lot of um, a lot of what happens in the fashion industry, I think, is just so incredibly watered down and one dimensional um, that it, it can be offensive. Yeah, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Um, yeah, which is why. <laughs> You know, buying old clothes is like a great act of resistance in some ways, I think. I think so, too. So let's talk a little bit about, like, your journey to what you do now, both, like, working in marketing and also, you know, running your own business. Like, where did this all start? Were you like, oh, my God, I'm in third grade and I can't wait until I grow up and get to work two jobs that are completely in opposite ends of the spectrum, (laughs) right? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's really funny. Third grade me. Well, I was always really into fashion. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I was when I was home for Thanksgiving, I was looking at, um, you know, family albums. And I was like, man, I had some looks even as a kid. <laughs> like, You know, I was a really shy kid. And I grew up um, in the Midwest outside of St. Louis. And, you know, it was like a bit of a cultural wasteland. You know, I didn't have access to like, the fashion industry and I got it all through magazines and Mm -hmm. um, me too Uh. yeah it's and that was my world you know it's just like I always felt this draw to um to clothes and to expressing oneself through clothing because it was just a really early language that I kind of always felt really comfortable in um even as a kid and so yeah I ended up moving to the east coast in college and moving a little bit closer to New York um and starting a fashion design degree in my undergrad, but I went to University of Delaware and they didn't really have an illustration program, so I changed it to English. Um, So, you know, I had like a a liberal arts degree and moved to New York and worked in boutiques, like fashion was always the pull. And so after over a decade in marketing um, and, you know, creative execution, I, I just kind of, it was the pandemic, you know, I know it's a really common story that people like really (laughs) took a look at what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
You know, but I was trying to sell clothes for a startup in a pandemic when everybody was at home in their pajamas. And I was like, you know what? This is kind of crazy. And even when I was working, even before my my corporate jobs, I worked like as a shop girl at a, at a boutique um, in Soho. And every item of clothing came in wrapped in plastic. Oh, no, dude. I, trust me. I mean, and it made... With a hanger. I was just going to say, like, and with a plastic hanger that literally no one wants. No one wants no. it. No uh, one wants it. And it's just, I remember being, you know, like way before thinking about sustainability and, and even as a thrifter, because my mom used to take us to Goodwill. I'll never forget the first time I spent my own money, um, babysitting money on something from Goodwill. It was like I was going through a goth phase. I think I was in eighth <laughs> grade. And I got this like really bizarre, like, shift dress from the 80s it was like very working girl but to me it just like I had a vision for it right Mm -hmm. with like combat boots and like ripped up tights and I was like hooked and I ended up working at the Goodwill for four years and collecting an amazing collection of um of vintage bags and and um accessories and clothes that of course I promptly like got rid of when I moved to New York City with no closets but um (laughs) yeah (laughs) sad story yeah but But yeah, I just, um, sorry, that was a total derailment, but thinking about just the wastefulness, like even, even, um, I just don't like having a lot of things, but I think once I was working in the industry and even when I was at a huge corporate retailer that everybody knows, um, I, we would have turn-ins and we would like kind of look at the clothes from the merch team before we photographed them. And it was insane how much new clothing was constantly coming in. And all I could think about was like, were these all on hangers? Was this all wrapped in plastic? (laughs) Yeah, no. And guess what? They were. And I would sometimes find, because before I worked in buying, I worked in retail and I was recruited from from retail to work buying as a buyer. And I would remember the days we would receive shipment. I mean, we, the company I worked for, yeah. we received shipment five days a week. Okay. So that's a lot, that's a lot. 40 to 100 yeah. to 200 boxes every single time. And sometimes you, it would be like a big plastic bag and, and that inside would be the pre-pack of like 12 garments, you know, in various sizes, also all mm. individually wrapped. And we would, when we process shipment, we would have, four, five, eight, ten trash bags of just plastic, plastic bags. Yeah, Hangers. I remember that. Yeah, so yeah. gross. It's it's really gross. And, um, you know, I think that that's, I think in the, the sustainability part was huge, but also just the pull, you know, people, what I find really interesting about vintage resale right now is that as someone who always wore secondhand clothes, you know, and in my childhood, even it was like very not cool and like not not the cute thing to do, not the oh, thing yeah. when you didn't have Same like limited or like, yeah, like it was actually something that could have caused me shame. But I was just like so stoked on like looking weird. And my mom gave me a lot of leeway and kind of wearing what I wanted. And we were always on a budget. So I think what's really cool about vintage resale and designer resale and luxury resale is just that it's becoming really mainstream. And so Mm -hmm. the stigma is kind of falling away. And I think there's a real opportunity to pull in a new consumer who never really went to a Goodwill in high school and like maybe thinks secondhand clothes are kind of gross. But like if 
they're buying, if they're inspired, you know, through all of these amazing vintage resale brands that are popping up now through amazing photography and vintage that's in really great condition that's been cleaned and pressed, like it's an experience like buying something off the rack. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the future. Like, I think it's really, really interesting. Um, and we're in an exciting moment in it. Yeah, I think so too. I'm, it's like hard for me to imagine someone not appreciating the fabulous world of secondhand. But then again, I also know that that is true because even, you know, I grew up poor in a very small town and like the most embarrassing thing you could do and on a list of a lot of other, in my opinion, far more embarrassing things uh, was go buy where someone else is close. Like it just, yeah, yeah, there was totally. such a stigma attached to it. It would be better to go yeah. to like, Kmart or Walmart and buy like a few things than to get like have a full ass wardrobe from like the Goodwill. It just people would like never let you live it down. And I started secondhand shopping really seriously in high school because I realized I have my own money now because I have a job and I can never I'm never going to be able to afford the things that people at school have. I don't necessarily want that because I don't really think I'm like an express kind of gal or I don't really care about guests or whatever else everybody was into. And I was reading, you know, magazines like Sassy and I was seeing like, wow, like these, these people are really cool. Or I was, you know, I read a lot of music magazines pretty religiously. Same. Yeah. And the secondhand was always such a big part of like musicians yeah. like especially in the late 90s like totally totally and so for me this is when I was like okay like this is where I fit in, in the world and definitely yeah. people made fun of me at school I mean definitely yeah. they'd be like oh you're poor and imagine saying that to someone it's like so weird <laughs> oh kids kids yeah, yeah totally I remember be like joke about like you it'd be a funny to joke to accuse someone of being poor um, which is terrible. Yeah. yeah anyway. It is yeah. terrible. And, you know, I think too, like, I remember, I think because, you know, I, I grew up on a single income family where we were very budget conscious, like luxury, luxury items were not something I was introduced to until I was actually working in fashion. And I remember being at a job and, and like not knowing the language or, or again, like not having black pants to wear, like having like all these like weird novelty <laughs> yep, pieces yep. looking like a ragamuffin, like what? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, but I think that like the idea of luxury items that can last a long time and that there's scarcity behind them and that it's, it's kind of the opposite of fast fashion, being able to have access to that at a reasonable price point through it being secondhand is also really valuable to like people who, you know, who might care about that. And like, I can't judge whether that's worth caring about or not, but I do love that like someone who's always wanted a Prada bag and that feels out of, you know, out of the realm for them can buy one secondhand, you know, for a reasonable price and give it new life. I remember specifically in my interview for a buying job, my first buying job, being asked what my favorite brands were and really yeah. like freezing up <laughs> yeah. and saying like, oh, I actually, I mostly just like thrift my clothes. I'm really into vintage. And I think yeah. that passed the test. But I was like, uh, do you, can I just list my favorite bands instead? Like I, I was like, I think I know the name Mark Jacobs. You know, <laughs> people like Mark Jacobs. Yeah, Mark Jacobs. Yeah, I, <laughs> I relate to that. Yeah, because 
if you're not in the buying cycle, you're not paying attention to who showed what on the runway and what trickled down. And yeah. like, and that is something that you need money to like be a part of. Like that's a world. And I think that what's cool about a lot of vintage brands and something that I'm inspired by as well is like, yeah, take key moments in fashion history, like take what might be recirculating and coming back, you know, every 20 years, that's a cycle anyways. Like, okay, puff sleeves, like have had a moment. Well, go to the source. Like, here's an amazing puff sleeve dress from the 80s that's silk and like is incredible. I think that fashion will also be moving in that kind of direction where like it's it's being asked to slow down. Mm -hmm and looking to vintage and incorporating vintage more in the current cycle is is something that I think is interesting. I think so too. I I have felt it coming for quite a while. I mean, obviously we still have influencers like slinging their like it bag of the season on Instagram Ugh. and stuff, but yeah. I'm so not a part of that and I don't really know anyone who is. Um, but I felt even like, I don't know, like 10 years ago in my career, I felt like we were really shifting into a place where we were thinking more about vintage as the inspiration, which isn't great either. But like, you know, we were buying samples and copying that stuff. I specifically remember, so when I interviewed for Nasty Gal, I ended up having to do two projects, which I could go off about fashion industry projects for like another hour because it's like so sketchy. Do you ever (laughs) have to do those in, in the marketing side of it? I have. Yeah, so you yeah. go. So for anybody who doesn't know, uh, you know, certainly when I interviewed at, at Starbucks in college, I didn't have to. They were just like, you know, what's the hardest customer interaction you've had to deal with or something? Mm. But to get into fashion in a lot of different roles and, you know, in creative roles in general, it's less about having a portfolio and more about like, do this really specific project for us. Um, and it's, it sucks. Uh, sometimes it's like you spend days on it. Um, you might submit the project and never heard, hear back ever. Like it ghosted that happened to me actually with need supply years ago. Mm. Um, they were like, can you do this project really fast me in like 24 hours? And so I stayed up all night and then like never heard back from them ever again in any way, even to acknowledge that they've received the project, which was cool. And I have a lot of other friends who have had similar experiences with other brands, but so for Nasty, I did a project. They wanted me to come up with like basic tea collection that would be in line with uh, Nasty Allen. Yeah. Does that sound like work? Yeah, that's because it is. And then when I started right. working there, I actually executed that project. So it was unpaid work for sure. But mm. the CEO at that time, who whose background was like Lululemon, she was like one of those people who would come to work in like $30,000 worth of clothes every day. And mm. she was like, I don't know, like, you know, this project is fine, but like you're the place you work the longest is Urban Outfitters, and that makes me worried that you have bad taste, which I I know, right? Like, what a neg. Oh, my. Um, So she made me do a second project, (laughs) and it was going to be about, like, what I saw as, like, emerging fashion trends for next year. So I Mm. did my whole project based on, like, famous rock star wives of the 70s (laughs) and using them as fashion inspiration. Right, yeah. Yeah, and I was really happy with it. And here's the irony of the whole thing. I present that to her. She has no idea who any of these women are. Oh, my God. Not even Patty Boyd. Not even Patty Boyd, who was in the project. Yeah. (laughs) Patty Boyd had to have been in the project. She's the most iconic. For sure. And if you don't know her, read her. uh, For all the listeners, 
uh, what was it, Wonderful Tonight? Have yeah, I totally. I will, interestingly enough, so was going good. through a period where I read all of those memoirs in like a six-month period, all amazing, amazing. and really eye-opening about the men that were a part of that like rock scene definitely changed the way I felt about some of them. Um, and I'm like kind of that person that yeah. you don't want to start talking to about how much you love such and such or this guy from the seventies. Cause I'll be like, well, actually, mm. <laughs> um, right. You read, you read the wife. Yeah. Book. <laughs> I read the, or the groupies, the groupies book. book. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, I was like, wow. Like to me, even at that time, I was like, I feel like you're so out of touch that you think that, the future of fashion is brands and labels when it's really like yeah. aesthetic and feeling. It is. And culture. And culture yeah, absolutely. Know, and moments in time. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Those projects that brought me back to, I was interviewing um, for a role and they asked me to do a project and I did the project. I spent a lot of time on it. And the person interviewing me said, yeah, this really isn't what we're looking for. And then they hired me and it was like, <laughs> wait, what? A total, yeah, it was like, it, that should have been a red flag, but I took the job because I was like, ah, maybe I just didn't hit it out of the park this time. I'll have another chance. No, no, everything was not what they were looking for. And that should have been Ooh. my indication. Yeah. I mean, I sort of with Nasty Gal, I should have been like, you're asking me to do a second project. You guys can go fuck yourselves. Because that was a red flag mm. yeah, too. That's a lot, that's of, a lot work of work. And being hired. I specifically remember yeah. like this happened. I was in London for two weeks for my current job at that time, which was mud cloth, and I was at a show. So I was working like crazy long days. I'm jet lagged, it's cold, I'm exhausted, all that stuff. And they're like, I'm like, well, I'm I'm in another country right now on a buying trip. And they're like, well, if you really want this job, you'll get it done. And I was like, you want me to hand it in 12 hours after I get my flight gets back? And they were like, yeah, but if you want it, you want it, right? And I, that should have been a red flag as well. But that project was really good, just saying. <laughs> I mean, I got the job, but I shouldn't have taken it, probably. That's a life lesson for everyone. Okay, so we went on a major detour there. So you started to kind of make this transition during the pandemic of you were like, I want more. I would think I was looking for more meaning. And like, I've had I've had a lot of great Mm -hmm. opportunities in my career. and, And one thing I really loved was I was overseeing teams. And that was like, giving me a lot of life, but mm-hmm. I kind of like, I began freelancing during the pandemic. And so that part kind of fell away and I was just like in an executing kind of capacity. And yeah, I did. I wanted more. And I think that I've always like, this might be weird to say, like, I love women. And like, I think that that's why I've always been drawn to fashion. I've always had, you know, pretty much like reported into women. I've always had like, teams filled with women. I love collaborating with women. And the idea for Club Sandwich came up because during the pandemic, you know, I was living in Manhattan and it was really jarring. Um, I live downtown and where it's like very, very lively. And when everything shut down, it was just like, a, you know, it, it just was so uh, stark. Yeah. And so the thing that I missed most that I never really realized I relied on so much was dancing, going out and dancing. Um, it's New York is such a great place. You can always find a place to dance. And like, it, it's just, you'll see like the most diverse, like group of people, all ages, um, like having a great time. And so, you know, there was no dancing for like a year. And I was like, 
craving this change. And, and my husband is a furniture designer and an interior designer. And we were like, what if we like opened like a club? And I was like, yeah. And what if it was called Club Sandwich? Like just a silly idea. But <laughs> right. Like <laughs> we would there. serve sandwiches and Prosecco <laughs> and like yeah. it would be, you know, I also have always been super inspired by music and I used to be a music writer and um, yeah, I was just really craving like a space. And then I kind of realized that Club Sandwich was about like envisioning the dance floor that I've shared with like so many amazing women and like what we were wearing and like leaving our desk jobs to like transition into night and what those special pieces are, like what that amazing blazer is and what that great dress is. And that's kind of where I came up with the brand idea. So it's been really fun. I've only been doing it for a year and a half and it's not my full-time gig, but I love being a part of just what's happening in, in the community and the other sellers I've met have been amazing. Um, yeah. And just like, it just thrills me because vintage is also really emotional, much like those novelty pieces we were talking about. Like you either love a vintage piece or it's like not for you. And like, it's got to fit right. It's got to be the right like material that you're willing to take care of, you know, if it's dry clean only like, or if you have to hand wash Mm -hmm. it. And so it's been really lovely for me to make sales with customers who are like, I love this piece. Like it's so special. And it's so, I, I tend to like kind of statement pieces because the, the curation is around pieces that you'll wear in your wardrobe with basics because you've learned that you need the black pants and you need a great pair of khaki pants and you need a white t-shirt. And, you know, so these are the, the beautiful things that you pair with it. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Close Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. 
But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old-school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at HighEnergyVintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. 
The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. You and I beforehand, we talked about how it would be really great for us to share with the listeners some some of your advice, your suggestions to having, I mean, I hate to use this word, so a more sustainable mm. wardrobe, let's say, you know, to really live the slow fashion way of life. I like that a lot better. Yeah, I, like um, I think a lot of people think, and this is also like totally the function of marketing, that if you want to be sustainable, uh, if you want to show that you care about the planet, if you want to soothe your ego anxiety, the best thing you can do is go out and buy some like hemp clothes from some so-called sustainable right. brand or, you know, go to Zara and get their like allegedly recycled polyester clothing or, you know, it's basically like you have to buy these yeah. things and then you'll be fine or throw out all your stuff and get a capsule wardrobe. That'll be OK, ah. too. But there's like a whole lot of shopping involved in it. What's your advice for people to maybe have that slow fashion way of life without shopping being the only way you get mm, there? That's such a good question. Um, and it's really like, it's sort of seeing your wardrobe and getting dressed in a different way altogether. And, you know, I think about my childhood and that we did a lot with very little and we weren't shoppers, mm -hmm. you know, I, I like was in a car seat in the car that I learned how to drive on when I was 16. And the idea of just keeping things for a long time is one way to do it. And so I'm mm -hmm. a big fan of like editing your closet and which can be very fun. It can also be like kind of a pain and kind of depressing, um, quote unquote, if you're like, eh, this reminds me of my ex or like, you know, I can't fit into this anymore or I'm in a new stage of life or this reminds me of a terrible job. Like, yeah, it's emotional, you know, clothes are emotional. But I think that committing to taking inventory, I like to do it every six months, is really, really helpful. Um, I think when you do shop, finding things that can work all seasons is great. And a lot of that has to do with the materials that you buy. Um, I think that buying natural fibers as much as possible is a great way to be sustainable because those clothes last longer and wear better. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I, to get back to not shopping, um, you know, The Conscious Closet is a really great book. I forget the name of the author who wrote it, but she talks about like even basic things like finding your colors. Because I remember having like a lot of brown, but also a lot of black, like my neutrals wouldn't even go together. And so kind of weeding out the things that don't go with anything and making a list of only buying when you know that it will pair back to something you already own and love is a great way to be sustainable. Mm -hmm. I think having clothing swaps um, with a group of friends is a great way to get new clothes and to get rid of things. And I used to have um, awesome parties with with friends in Brooklyn where we would just, everybody would, you know, bring a bottle of wine and we'd have some cheese and crackers and like have these swaps. And we would each tell stories about, you know, the clothing that we were parting with. And then, you know, you got this little special extra, this kind of story of where this top had been or these pants um, when you integrated them into your wardrobe. So, yeah, I mean, I guess those are some ideas. I think too, just 
psychologically and, and from a mindfulness perspective, you know, when you're on Instagram, when you're opening your inbox, like resist the newness message. Like the idea of newness mm-hmm. is, ah, it's, addictive. it's addictive. And, you know, we're living in a time when the pace of newness is the fastest it's ever been and being ahead of the curve. And, you know, like it, it's not, it just because it's new doesn't mean that you need it. And so really being intimately acquainted with your belongings um, and seeing them as a burden if you have too much or you have things you don't use is like a really great mental shift, I think, to start acting in a more sustainable way. The newness is the hardest habit to break. Yeah. And I think we have grown up swimming in this sea of like, I have nothing to wear, mm. right? Yeah. But I mean, I have caught myself thinking that. And then I'm like, actually, like, realistically, I have enough clothes to probably last me the rest of my life. Right. As long as I, like, take care of them and I stay the same size and I don't move somewhere with a drastically different climate. Now, we know that, like, it's really unrealistic to expect all of us to say, like, okay, well, I have all the clothes. I'm never going to buy new clothes ever again. Like, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. But I do think, like, it's the key is sort of catching ourselves in the bad habits of like, like, for example, like the one we talked about where you just have a whole bunch of novelty clothes that don't really fit together. Man, if you try to pack a suitcase of novelty clothes to go on a trip, it's like, that's where you end up with like three suitcases. Totally. No, that's exactly right. (laughs) Um, You know, when I was working as a visual merchandiser, uh, one of the things we would do on mannequins, I mean, this is another way in which, like, this happens on websites, you know, e-com as well. Uh, One of the ways we would sell more stuff to people, because, like, one of the targets we were always trying to hit was, like, getting people to buy as many units as possible. And this was, like... This is like a metric that we would report on and, you know, try to like increase year over year. One way we would get people to buy more stuff every time they shopped was by creating literally like the most complicated outfits ever. Like layering was like the big focus, right? Yeah. So it would be like, let's do a cami with some sort of bra underneath that you can see and then like a flannel over it and then like shorts but also tights but then also socks but then also shoes and then also all this jewelry like when layering necklaces was a thing man let me tell you my employers were stoked yeah and three necklaces a low slung belt that didn't go through any belt loops but like didn't do anything i know A, hat, a furry hat just to add to the top. I don't know definitely, why. Definitely, definitely. I know, I know. It, the belt kills me because there would be times I would step back and I would think, I don't know if a person could function in this outfit. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter. And you might say to yourself, I would never go into a store and buy the full outfit that is on the mannequin. I'm going to tell you two things. One, lots of people do. Uh, and two, even if you didn't buy that whole outfit, so you're thinking like, hmm, I should wear shorts with tights and socks and boots with a belt that doesn't go through any loops. Mm -hmm. It's in your head. It is because, well, that's what's so interesting that fashion also does is we create images. Like it's an industry of creating images. And that's why representation has been such a problem up until very recently, because our eyes are actually trained to expect a certain thing. And Mm -hmm. Yeah, you creating that outfit and putting it on a mannequin all of a sudden makes it um, aspirational and it makes it something that someone needs. And so 
it, it plants that seed, even though in reality, it like may not even function to your point. And I think it's interesting to think about styling too, because I think that that's something that everybody has access to, like, and it's, it's personal preference, of course, how you wear clothes. And I know this is happening on TikTok, even though I don't know firsthand. Um, but <laughs> these ideas of, you know, different hacks and like, it takes a bit of imagination, but let's say like you have a cardigan that's been sitting in your closet that you've only ever worn over a t-shirt. Well, maybe you start wearing it as your first layer and you don't wear anything under it. You just like button it up and it becomes a pullover and it looks completely different and it's transformed and it fills in your need for like a black long sleeve shirt because now you're wearing it closed. Like these are very simple things, but they just take a little bit of um, imagination and inspiration and, and really spending time with your clothes. I think that it's just all about time. Yeah. And putting more time into it. Like like you and I were saying earlier, like it's easier and easier to purchase something without thinking about it. Like e-com yeah. has made it so easy because you don't even have to like walk anywhere or carry the bag with you when you leave or hand over your credit card, wait in line, like none of that stuff. The number of websites that you can now per- make a full purchase in under one minute is pretty wild and it's intentional. Oh, yeah. Yeah the, yeah, the customer journey has gotten like shorter and shorter to like the conversion of purchase. And what I like that you've um, spoken about before is the, is it the 24 or 48 hour rule that you use? I usually go for 24, but I think if you are a person who uh, can't be trusted to make a good decision in 24 <laughs> hours, which I've had times in my life where I was not, push it to 48. What would always get to me is like, because I'm not really into like, you know, drop culture or like this is going to sell out. Like, I don't really think about that that much. But man, if it was like a sale, like I used to be obsessed with any time free people had a sale. Oh, yeah. And you would just buy regard. I'm the same way with sale shopping. Yeah. Oh, my God. Especially if it was sale on sale. Oof. So, you know, it's a classic, right? We're going to be coming up on everybody on December 26th is going to yeah. be having sale on sale. In fact, the really smart retailers, and I mean smart in like the, you know, really smart at capitalism retailers are going to start that on Christmas Day because they realize this Thanksgiving that lots of people are bored and want to shop on Thanksgiving. So they're going to carry that into Christmas, right? Yeah, they're just on and, their phones on the couch. Yeah, exactly. They're going to have sale on sale. It's going to be take an extra 25% off all markdowns, 50% off all mm-hmm. markdowns, that kind of thing. And that is, for me, that is like, that pushes my buttons. That's yeah. what's going to get me to buy a bunch of stuff that I haven't thought about. And let me tell you, when you put yourself on the 24-hour hold with that, like you fill your cart with all the things, these hot deals you want. I mean, in my experience, I come back and I don't want any of it anymore. Mm. And none of it sells so out, good. by the way. That's the fear, right? Like that's the sense of urgency, the call to action that retailers want you to have. Like, oh, if you don't get it now, it's going to be gone. And I always go back and look. I mean, I haven't even, honestly... I stopped even engaging with that kind of sale or action uh, during the, like in the early days of the pandemic. And so I have never gone back. I found out I didn't miss anything. But before that, I'd put myself on the 24 hour hold for several years and I would be like, wow, I don't want any of this. Why would I want this bedazzled capelet? Yeah, it's 70% off, but like, what am I going to do with that? I can't wear a coat over it. I can't wear it to work. It looks like the beads are going to fall off. Like, what? I'm just caught up in a moment. I'm yes. not going to look like that model looks when I wear it because I can't wear a capelet and no shirt to work. 
Right. You know? It doesn't work for your life. It doesn't work with a coat. It doesn't work, period. It doesn't work, period. Yeah. And I think you don't get there when you're in the moment. I think like thinking about how it's going to work is like the missing piece for a lot of us. Yeah, I, I think so too. And that I think that just comes with practice. And that just comes with, you know, like even sometimes I like take pictures of outfits, like especially work, like for work, if I'm like going into an office, I'm like, okay, this will save me time if I remember this outfit. I don't need to think about it. I felt good mm-hmm. in it. Like I don't need to like wait on wearing this red shirt because I don't have the right pants for it. Like, and I think that kind of building up those those go-tos and those like perfect pieces because those are the pieces that will last a long time too and that you'll you'll shop for way less. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, where people get stuck there sometimes too is it's like, oh, I've already worn this a lot right, and this thing is happening anymore. where I need something new. Yeah. yeah, or it's fun. It needs to be fun. I need I mean, and I get it, like, right, we get bored. We are humans. Yeah. We get bored. What is your advice to someone who is like Everything in my closet I've worn a thousand times. Probably not true. A hundred might not even be true for some people, right? But I've worn this a lot. I've been wearing it continuously and I'm just, I'm just over it. I'm bored. I want something new. What would you tell people to do then? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that newness is powerful. That's why it works from like a yeah. marketing yeah. message standpoint. And I think people should treat themselves to something new. But I think that when you're purchasing something new, think about the longevity of it. Like, think about how many times, like different occasions you might wear it in or different ways you might style it to make it wearable for more occasions. Because I think that the more that you kind of like feed that hit of needing the newness mm-hmm. with something that's just not going to work, the more disappointment there actually will be. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think that like if you're totally sick of everything you own, sure, like I could say like rent it. I've never been a renter of anything. And like I, I want to own my own clothes. And I know that people you know, feel that way too, that they want to just have something new and special, but be, be mindful about it. You know, I think that that helps because that just changes shopping habits period. And then you can really enjoy that new purchase that you've made. Yeah, absolutely. Like really think about it and where it fits into your life. And I say that as a person who has bought so many things in my life that once they arrived at my house, they didn't fit into my life or even worse. They'd be like, well, now that I have this thing, I need a special, I need to buy a special bra for it. Right. Or none of the shoes I own work with it. So now I have to buy shoes right. or on and on. I mean, there's like so much, so much to think about that just leads to more shopping. And then you're like, oh, I couldn't possibly wear that coat with this because the sleeves won't fit inside it. Like it just grows and grows until you're buying. I don't, I don't know if you've had this experience where you're buying this whole supporting cast to support <laughs> yeah. this thing that you bought that like you never ended up wearing anyway. Totally. Ponchos <laughs> are often guilty of that, at least in cold weather environments. <laughs> yes. I definitely had a period. I mean, they were all secondhand, but I could not stop buying ponchos. I mean, they're great pieces. It's just if you live in a place where there's snow and you have to wear a coat, it's like, does it become <laughs> your scarf or do you just carry it along until you get like indoors? 
Right, right. When I moved to LA, I was like, finally, I shall be able to wear all the yeah, ponchos. Totally. And that was an ideal climate for that, where it was like mostly not too cold. But during the winter, you surprisingly start to get cold. You feel cold, but you know, all your friends everywhere else are like, you're a baby. Um, <laughs> and it was suitable for ponchos. But like, I moved those ponchos there with me. Okay. I didn't yeah. get them because I was adapting to a different climate. It's just too easy to buy things without thinking about what's going to happen next. Yeah. And that's sort of our challenge. And retailers are going to hate that. Retailers are going to hate that a lot. And, you know, I think for anyone that lives in New York, closet space is such an issue. Like I currently <sighs> live in a two bedroom apartment with exactly zero closets. So <sighs> that has, we have like these two standing closets, one and I have my own studio for vintage, but because um, that takes a lot of storage. But yeah, I have to be really mindful. Like every time an item comes in, something goes out um, because otherwise there's just, it's chaos. And I think that like the idea that that conscious closet book um, that I mentioned earlier was so helpful, even writing down like in a notebook, like what are the colors? Like, are you more drawn to navies or are you more drawn to black? Like, mm-hmm. are you into cream or are you into white and making sure that you're having those pieces and those pieces aren't fun to buy they're not like emotionally like oh my god I love this white t-shirt like it's boring but it will make the fun purchases like last so much longer and have so much more purpose because you're able to actually like style them totally so when you something comes in something goes out what do you do with the thing that's going out? Yes. So I schlep it. Um, I do not own a car. (laughs) So yeah, I haven't owned a car since 2004. And um, I get a big Ikea bag. I've always been a big consigner. So anytime Mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough to live walking distance from like a Buffalo exchange where I always try to sell my cast offs if I can. Mm -hmm. Um, and or like a beacon's closet and then otherwise i i'm a big donator and um housing works will take things and recycle things that they do not use um and resell things that they do so the idea of throwing something in the trash like uh offends me to the core um (laughs) and i know sometimes when you donate you really don't know like what the path is there's right there's a great um service called references um that's a startup that just started in new york and they'll actually come to your house and just pick up um your bags of clothes and they will wow yeah they'll pay you out for some and they list them they have a beautiful website and then they have total transparency as to where they donate um and they give you like a little report based on you know what they picked up from that's incredible i love this it's great especially when you live in a fifth floor walk up like I do um, cause it gets really heavy and schleppy. So that's a wonderful service. Um, they have an Instagram account for anyone in New York. Um, they're really great, but yeah, that's, that's what I try to do. And, you know, during my time working at Goodwill, um, we really did, we really did resell as much as possible. Like I do think that companies try their best um, I'm sure that that's changed over the years because there's just so much more waste. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to say, like, you really touched this, like, 
my heart when you talked about consignment and resale, like Buffalo Exchange, like Beacon's Closet. There's like other chains of that do that. Like that, I am such a huge fan of that. I mean, we have many places here in Austin that do that as well. And they're actually like, if I'm going to go clothing shopping, usually my first stop because, you know, they're a little bit more organized than like a thrift store would generally be. Um, And they're like, you know, the prices are good. And I know that like, I don't know, I think... What I love about consignment stores really is that that incentive of getting some cash motivates people to like give their clothes a second chance rather than trashing them. Like it's the money, I right? Agree. That's what takes you there, at least initially. Oh yeah, it's it's amazing. And I think I discovered those consignment shops because I was in Delaware before I came to New York and there wasn't any kind of consignment shop where I was living. And it was... Like I moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like I pretty much for all of my 20s, aside from a few errant Zara and H&M runs buying ridiculous things like I bought plenty of ridiculous things from Beacons as well. But (laughs) it became it became kind of a cycle where like I would sell things and then I would often just use the credit to buy new things if I needed the new things. And I would allow myself to Mm -hmm. buy as many new things as I got rid of. so it was like definitely like a disciplined flow, but I think that that has a lot to do with not having a lot of space. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of forces you into that. I mean, I think that that's something that probably a lot of people listening can identify with. Because even like I, I live in a house, um, but like our we don't own this house, so it's not like we can like renovate it. And the closets here are abysmal. Uh, the closet where mm. most of my clothes is isn't even tall enough to hang dresses. Like the rails aren't high enough, oh, and no. we don't own it. So like I don't yeah. want to. I don't know who used this closet before, but it's really weird. I think it, a, a man used it, and they had, like, shirts and pants. That's what it was. Um, and so, yeah. like, my cl- my ability to house clothing is really limited, too. And honestly, like, living in this house more than anything, I mean, as a person who has worked in the industry my adult whole adult life and definitely has bought way more clothes than I ever needed or really truly wanted or loved because I felt that pressure to fit in, uh, this house has really kept me in line with acquiring clothing, whether it's secondhand or sustainable or whatever. It doesn't matter because it all becomes a stressful burden. Yes, absolutely. I love that. So do you keep your closet organized in a particular way to make sure you don't lose things in there? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I keep my closet organized according to category. So my guiltiest pleasure is definitely outerwear. I have like way too many (laughs) coats, but like living in New York, your coat is like, you know, your car, you're like in it whenever you're like going from point A to point B. Yeah, totally. It has to be warm. It has to like look great with your outfit. And then depending on your outfit, like you can't just, for me, I've never been able to just have a one size fits all, like, you know, puffer coat that just is my warm sleeping bag. Like I just have lots of different iterations of outerwear. So that takes up a lot of space in the closet. Um, and then I have like blazers and then I have shirts. Um, yeah. And then I have my dresses and we have a platform bed with like three drawers each for all of our other things like denim and, and sweatshirts. And I have one of those hideous over the door hangers for like all of my shoes and my shoes spill out. <laughs> They're popular for a reason. <laughs> They are. I mean, they really do save space. They're yeah, they really do. 
<laughs> I remember the first when I first got one of those, I was like, now I'm an adult. Yeah. <laughs> it does feel very adult. Yeah. yeah, they're not just like all over the Yeah, like under your bed. Yeah, I do think exactly. like in my experience as, you know, primarily like an apartment liver and a person who's moved around a lot and has like had a lot of clothes but not a lot of space. What I yeah. have found is if my closet isn't organized, it's kind of like one key element of slow fashion is keeping your closet organized. It just has to be I because totally you lose things. Yes. You lose things and you're able to... I like have done it by color before, but that doesn't really work because I tend to like dress according to like shapes Mm -hmm. more than I do colors. Um, So what I like to do is kind of see which things and I tend to like push the things that are hyper seasonal, like the two dresses. I mean, I have two special occasion dresses. That's it. I have one. That's all you need. I hate. I mean, I'm sure. You have worked on many marketing campaigns around guest of wedding and holiday parties. And I mean, gosh, even at one of my jobs, we were doing it was I I was actually explaining this to someone the other day and I wasn't even doing it in a like, how stupid is this? I was being just like really straightforward. I was like, yeah. And then at this place, we did this whole story around dresses you should buy to wear for Mother's Day, not as a mother, but to wear to hang out with your mother. And I was like, what? Why did I just say out loud? (laughs) (laughs) You know, Mother's Day guest. Mother's Day guest. I mean, these are the kind of things that you work on in fashion marketing. Like, what other reason can we give people to buy things? Yeah, it's made up. It's a lot of made up occasions and yeah I I mean I have a dress that would work one of my special occasion dresses is like a little mini dress that's more like cocktail wedding I even have worn it on a birthday with like a baseball hat and like sneakers to dress it down and then my other one is a black dress that could be worn at a wedding or funeral or um, so smart yeah and I think that that's helpful because that's one of those novelty items where it's just like yeah I don't want more of that kind of thing in my closet because I'm going to open my closet and be like, why do I have this like totally bizarre, asymmetrical jersey, bright green floor length dress? Like, where am I going to wear that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I found that like when my clothing hoarding was at its worst, I was really focused on going out clothes. And Mm. I mean, like, they're so fun. I know they are fun, right? And I think that's where it goes. And you want to feel like your best, especially if you're out there, like looking to meet people, looking to mingle. And I step back now and I'm like, I barely go out. I like work all the time where I'm just like, now the pandemic has changed me into a person who's like, my comfort place is being at home. I realize Mm. Um, I'm just like calmer and I feel safer. And I don't know, I can just like do whatever I want. But I think back like to that time and I'm like, okay, but like realistically, like how many nights a week were you actually going out? Right. But you have all these clothes. Yeah. Yeah. But then like to wear to work, I'm like, (laughs) I have one thing. That's exactly how I was. And I never had like two pair of matching socks for like work. <laughs> oh man, I know this feeling. My I things like that or I'd be like, I have three bras that I have had since college and I'm just wearing them over yeah. and over again. But man, do I have a whole lot of rompers? <laughs> yeah, I've got tights in every color of the rainbow, but I don't own a pair of matching socks to wear <laughs> with shoes. Like what? <laughs> yeah. But I think that's that's also just I think that's that's being in your 20s, you know, and that's kind of learning how to get dressed and, and working in certain environments mm-hmm. kind of like shuttles you into having maybe a more versatile wardrobe than other places. Because I know for myself, like, 
I've always kind of been a fashion chameleon. So like that was a moment that was like an Andy Sleaze moment in Brooklyn where I was living. I was 25 and I had an asymmetrical haircut and wore like nothing that went together. I wore the mannequin look that you were selling (laughs) with the belt. (laughs) So many. There was definitely a time in my life where I specifically remember having an entire hanger in my closet that was just belts draped over it that served no real purpose, but definitely got worn. They were just so ridiculous. Right. And like, I think that that's where the critical thinking comes in is like, do I need 12 belts or do I need like three good belts? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, God. Just taking me back. I'd forgot about I remember there was this one year where the big belt was this like big like sort of concho belt uh that was like Mm -hmm. leather circles well let's be real they were not real leather circles with like studs and like you know then they have like a concho in the center and like of course these are like huge faux leather circles so it's like it doesn't go through belt lobes it's a it's a belt that you wear over things it's made to be worn over it's made to be (laughs) non-functional We sold so many of those at my job. That was right before the scarf era. And then we would sell so many scarves that were just like, they also did nothing. Um, and I think about those scarves to this day because they were all like polyester and they're just all in the landfills forever, you know? I know. They're going to like outlive us. I think about that all the time. All those scarves and faux leather uh, <laughs> concho belts. I mean, I guess there is a, there's a bright side. And maybe there's not because I guess we're totally looking back at like Y2K in this moment and soon <laughs> soon it will be like the 2010s and indie sleeves where it was just so much about pointless accessories and clashing oh and like, my god I know <laughs> it was really senseless but you you were buying more because you needed a lot to make one outfit like a t-shirt and jeans and ballet flats I guess that was kind of a look as well but like right. it was not a minimalist time. No, no. And I worked in accessories then as a buyer. And let me tell you, we were like printing our own money. Yeah. Of like, like, oh, but you also need a headband. You do. You need like a like a headband that goes across the forehead. Like a Oh, I wore so many of those. Actually, like that just triggered like a pain <laughs> in my forehead thinking about it. Yeah. But like I I loved that look as I felt like it made me look really sexy as a person with like long hair parted in yeah. the middle. Oh, I was yeah. like, oh yeah, you know, it holds my hair in place. Totally. I was looking through my phone at some old pictures from that time period and I'm we- I'm not kidding. I'm wearing one in every photo. It was your signature. Clothes are personal. That's the thing. And like it, we have to part with some things because we change and we grow. And, right. Like, you couldn't have held on to all those headbands. Like I used to have, I I don't know how sustainable (laughs) this is, but like I used to have something called my barcode and my barcode was a secondhand coat that I didn't care if I mistakenly left at the bar in my 20s. And it was this like Penny Lane, like it was actually pretty fabulous. It it had a shearling collar and like a shearling. Oh, that sounds amazing. It was amazing, but, and I loved it as a primary coat. However, it was so old that the shearling was disintegrating and it was just blowing off in tufts, like everywhere I would go. Yeah, I know this feeling well, too. (laughs) Yeah, so I was like, I guess if I forget this coat, it won't pay me too much, and maybe it will have a new life with some other girl that finds it at the bar. Like, (laughs) And there would just be the certain things that you would kind of buy for for certain occasions. But like, that was one of many, many coats. And did I need that many coats? And if I was willing to part with a coat, did I really need it in my closet? Right. You know. Wow. I mean, these are the questions we need to think about, right? Because we don't. 
We don't. You're just like, oh, this is just what it is. We don't, yeah. And we separate our wardrobe into these weird segments where they don't cross. Like, I still see this. I mean, you know, we talked about, like, guest of wedding, guest of Mother's Day, (laughs) whatever, all of that, like, as a marketing message. But also, it would be like, oh, I mean, I don't live this way because I... I'm not like a different person on the weekends, but there would be like weekend looks, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, okay, well, that's your weekday wardrobe, but like, what are you going to wear on the weekend? And that sounds preposterous saying it. Maybe not as preposterous as guest of Mother's Day, but getting there because like, (laughs) why should we be wearing clothes, having clothes for different days of our lives? Like, I get some people have to wear business suits to work. Fine. I don't expect you to wear that on the weekend. But for most of us who work in more casual environments, why do we need even more casual clothes for the weekend? It's true. And I think that there's really a trend, too, in the workplace, of course, depending on the industry you're working in. But like being more of your full self, like I remember early in my corporate career, I felt like I couldn't wear secondhand clothes. I had to like buy off the rack and like... Mm -hmm buy too much of it and it didn't really I didn't look any better because I was wearing new clothes as opposed to the secondhand clothes I actually felt comfortable in that I would wear on the weekends um yeah yeah you know and it's like I think the older you get and also like that corporate culture and office culture has become or is trying to become more inclusive like there have been strives and I think people feel a bit more comfortable um you know some people more than others because it can get very like complicated to express your true self. But I do think that like the trend is moving towards that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think we're getting there. I think one positive attribute of, of the pandemic, I mean, we already touched on one, which was people like really revisiting their lives and what they were doing and their time and what mattered to them. I think we're also seeing this more like homogenation of style where it's just like, wear what you want you don't need to have all these different uniforms for every single situation in your life which is probably really disruptive for the fashion industry yeah it's true it's true because dressing you know I remember like marketing messages in in previous roles being like an outfit for every day of the week or a whole month of outfits and like none of them it's really interesting because I always wanted to like repurpose the hero piece. I'd be like, how about if the mar- how about if we like try to sell this shirt and we show her, you know, six ways to wear it and they'd be like, no, like that's not the point. The point is that you need five different shirts. <laughs> or I have worked places that are like, let's show the versatility of this blazer or something. And but like how we're going to do it is we're going to show it five different ways with 20 different things you need to buy to wear with it, which to is make the outfit. right, yeah. which is like pointless. I mean, I've definitely gone and try. I haven't actually I haven't done this for a long time. Like go to a store at like the mall and try on clothes. Like I haven't done that mm. in years at this point, but definitely like the smart retailers will put your clothes in the fitting room with other layering pieces on, on the little hook so that you will realize like, Oh, I couldn't possibly wear this without that bra. I couldn't right. possibly wear this without that button up. Like it, it's so insidious. Um, and once again, like this is like a really great time when you're shopping to take that moment and say, is it best for me to buy something that is going to require me to buy all these other accoutrements to make it work? Right, right. That's how you end up with the novelty wardrobe as well. The novelty wardrobe. Beware. Listeners, beware. beware. Yeah. <laughs> it's the arch nemesis of the capsule wardrobe. <laughs> 
It is, but even the capsule wardrobe, like you is were a saying novelty earlier, wardrobe. It kind I of think, is. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, it just it doesn't work for me. I yeah. I have seen people have great success in that, but I also like remember that time. It was like maybe five years ago and that was something that people were really posting about a lot on Instagram and like showing yeah. their capsule wardrobe. And it always involved like buying a bunch of new stuff. You got to get that striped shirt and you got to get that black dress and blah, 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 blah. And I'm going to tell you, the friends of mine who engaged in that, I don't see them wearing any of those clothes right now. Right. Because it's so it's so specific to the way you want to dress. Like you can create your own capsule wardrobe in, let's say you really love wearing short printed dresses. Like that's maybe you wear, maybe you have five of those and your other things in the capsule is making sure that you have like tights for winter. If you like to wear tights or over the knee boots or whatever it is to make that thing more wearable, but you don't need to like dress in a certain way that's dictated by a capsule collection because people feel like that's the way to dress, you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. I think that's just the most important part of it all is like being really honest with yourself and being true to yourself. And I know that that's easier said than done. I certainly have fallen for my share of advertising in magazines and Refinery29 listicles in my life. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to talk more about what you're working on with Club Sandwich? Yeah. Um, I just did an e-com shoot that I'm really excited about. Um, Ooh. Yeah. I'll be having some... I haven't really been doing like drops because I also am not a drop shopper. Um, <laughs> but I'm working on building my website. I also sell on Depop and my, my website is shopclubsandwich.co. Um, my mm. Depop is a club underscore sandwich. And yeah, I'm just trying to kind of streamline like the inventory, which feels like a growing pain for everybody that's selling single SKU items. Um, yeah, Yeah. I have this conversation over and over again. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to track. And and I'm really excited because um, I have finessed the categories. So for me, I didn't want to be selling too many categories because I specialize in 70s and 80s vintage, um, as well as pre-loved designer. And that's that's modern. Um, But you know, I was like, I don't just want to sell a random belt or like a bag or, you know, so I'm really streamlining to just be about dresses and about um, blazers and about shoes, because those are the things that I love. And those are the ways that I dress and have found success in like versatility, um, as well as outerwear, because I just cannot. So that's exciting. (laughs) But yeah, I'm excited about that. I'll be doing some in-person markets in Williamsburg starting in the spring again. I just did um, my holiday run. And, you know, I feel like everybody that is in this game also has a lot of other full-time or part-time work happening. And I have that as well. So, And I think that's really important to call out because... I get a lot of emails from different people who are selling vintage and or, you know, are makers, whatever, are trying to build a small business. Right. And they're always like really sheepish. I can sense that they feel embarrassed to say that they also have another job. And I'm like, dude, Mm. I have another job. We all have another job. That is the world that we live in right now. Do I love that I have to work like nine gazillion hours a week to get everything done that I want to do? No, but like... I think it's important for us to be really honest about that. Yeah, and it's not a sign of success or non-success, at least right. in 
I feel like for myself, like I love the variety of having um, different streams of income, you know, to be totally honest, and also just the variety of using my skill set in different ways. And mm-hmm. what's been mm-hmm. so great. Agreed. Yeah, what's been so great about Club Sandwich is like, I haven't even got it since I'm so new, I haven't even like used any marketing skills that I have because right now it's wow it's I mean I have with like you know basic things like visual language and copywriting and um but like email marketing like I I haven't delved into that like I absolutely need to do that like like optimizing for SEO all these things that are really important when you're selling online I'm just like having fun kind of getting to know who my girl or guy is and like sourcing is something that brings me great joy as is styling um, shoots. And that's something that I haven't been able to do in my nine to five. Well, it's so great to talk to you today. Do you have any last and you don't, it's okay if you don't have an answer here, but do you have any like last words of wisdom, which is like a last thing you want to say to everyone? Oh my goodness. I I'm super grateful to have been a guest. So thanks so much, Amanda. And um, yeah, I hope that everybody can just, I hope this was helpful and that there's some nuggets about just being more thoughtful um, in not only how you shop, but also all these marketing messages and tactics we talked about. Um, yeah, because we all have we all have power and it's kind of amazing if we start harnessing it, how it can change our lives and our habits. It's totally true. We do have the power. Yeah. We do. Take yeah. the power back. <laughs> Woo! We're going to do it. Guys, clean out your closet. Immediately. Immediately. Seriously, It'll feel though. so good. It will. I, I, you know, when you were talking about how, like, there can be a lot of emotion involved in it, mm. or, like, it can be a bummer, I was like, yeah, I feel that. But sometimes it's so good to just have that, like, cathartic moment. Because then you, I mean, and I say this as a person who moves a lot, so, like, I'm constantly ha- being forced by the cruel hand of fate to have to do this anyway. Yeah. Uh, you feel so good when you go to bed that night where you're like, oh, I really did it. Well, it's true. And just from like a just lightening your load and like having less clutter in your space is an amazing feeling. And I, I really do think that we have to say no to things to make space for like the yes, you know, and that yeah. applies to our closets, too, for sure. Totally. I agree. I love that. Well, thank you. Thanks again to Sarah for spending several hours with me. I hope all of you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. I know she shared her contact info in the convo, but I'm just going to reiterate it here. Shop the collection at shopclubsandwich.co and join the club at shopclubsandwich. That's on Instagram. As you know, there'll be no TikTok. (laughs) And I'll share all that info in the show notes too. As I mentioned before our conversation and during it, Surprise, surprise. (sighs) Where there's a way for someone to be sketchy and make some money, it will happen, right? And there are a lot of fraudulent product reviews on Amazon and other sites. It's really hard to crack down on them despite many efforts. That's because, I mean, I went down a wild rabbit hole to get to the bottom of this. I have to say the methods are super sneaky, really elaborate, and super clever. If you've ever received some random small thing in the mail that you did not order, you were part of one kind of review scam called brushing, as in like brushing your hair. 
And this has actually happened to a few friends of mine who started receiving the oddest things in the mail that they did not order. A pack of scrunchies, clip-on hair extensions, fake fingernails, a picture frame. Once again, all things that they had not ordered that were very inexpensive and mostly unremarkable and kind of like, what am I going to do with this now? So that's brushing, okay? How does it work? Well, third-party sellers on Amazon, eBay, and other online retailers pay people to write fake positive reviews about their product. These brushers need to trick the website into thinking they purchased the thing they actually ordered. So they have to create a legitimate transaction. They'll use a fake account to place gift orders and just have them sent to a random person whose address they found online. Many of these sites don't really have like the technological infrastructure to confirm that an item actually receiving the review was really purchased. They just work off of tracking numbers and, you know, the proof that there was some kind of transaction, right? So the brusher, you know, they want to spend the least amount of money on this job they're doing of writing fake reviews. So they'll place an order for something really cheap, focusing on items that are lightweight and will most likely have free shipping. They want to keep those costs down, right? When the package is delivered to the random recipient, it enables the brusher to write a verified review. It just like triggers something in the system. As the recipient of the product, you or someone you love or know or don't even like, uh, you don't need to be afraid that someone has stolen your identity or hacked your account. But all of us need to be aware that some or many of the reviews we read might be fake and may have been created this way. But there is another, even more complicated machine creating fake reviews. I'm going to share in the show notes a Wired article called Inside the Underground Market for Fake Amazon Reviews. It's fascinating because it shows how complex the system is. And even though this article focuses on Amazon, the reality is that these fake reviews are everywhere. There are agents out there whose sole business is coordinating fake positive reviews. If you've ever seen an online ad offering you free stuff or a 100% rebate on Amazon items, these were part of the process of procuring people to write these reviews. Often it involves joining Facebook groups where tasks and tips are shared, but it does seem like some of this recruiting also happens on Instagram and other social media platforms. Members of these Facebook groups are presented with a list of things that need reviews. And these items, I mean, it's it's pretty wild. They can range from $5 to even $1,000 in value. So this can be a lucrative and generally pretty low effort way to accumulate things you need or just want. I mean, you could even resell them, right? Basically, the scam works this way. You're told what to purchase on Amazon. You receive it. You write the review. You share proof of the review, and then you receive a payment that covers the cost of the item, and you get to keep that item. This has nothing to do with Amazon itself outside of the actual purchase or any other platform where you're doing this. These platforms don't know anything about it. Rather, these agents are the middle person between the brand selling on Amazon or whatever platform and the people writing the reviews. So this Wired article, once again, go read it because I'm giving you the very high level of it, but there's so much more information on there. 
It focuses on a PhD student at UC Davis who started noticing these ads and joined a bunch of these Facebook groups. He managed to collect a lot of information, including surveying some of the buyers and agents. He found that of those surveyed, people were writing an average of 10 reviews per month for products with a total value between $120 and $2,400. It's a lot. Agents would earn 4 or $5 for each review they secured with average monthly earnings of $150. So there's like a massive network of these agents doing this. And it's kind of like passive income for them to a certain extent. So the agents are an important part of this puzzle. The reviewers, which they call Jennies, as in Jenny from the block or friend of the pod, Jenny Herbert, These Jennies are coached very carefully on how to execute the process from searching for the item to leaving the review, all to make the fake review unspottable by Amazon's algorithm. The agents never give out direct links to the item because that can trigger Amazon's fraud department. Instead, they coach the Jennies on how to search in more realistic ways, from clicking through other related items, marking other reviews as helpful, and even asking questions on the page. I'd always kind of wondered about that because I noticed that on Amazon and other sites that some of the question sections, if the site had that, were like really weird questions that I just didn't think a real person would ask. But then I was like, well, people are always surprising to me, right? Um, And I've even noticed this, like when I've looked for hotels, for example, I've seen some really strange reviews on both ends of the spectrum that were both negative in a very strange way that didn't feel authentic and hyper positive in a way that didn't feel authentic. So... Jennies are expected to include a photo and or video and write a review that is more than 300 words. All of these things will push that review up on the page, on the product page, and it will trick the algorithm that any of these platforms use into believing that the review is real. They are also coached, and this goes back to what I was just saying about spotting some negative reviews that felt inauthentic to me. They're coached to leave negative reviews on other products in order to make their profile seem more genuine. And of course, it is ideal if the Jennies are regular Amazon customers or whatever the platform is. Um, And if it's Amazon, it's also best if they have Prime accounts because it makes everything about them seem more real. I mean, these are real people, right? Anyway, but to make the behavior seem more real, to make the, the review seem more genuine, Why all of this skullduggery and intrigue? Well, while no one fully understands how, for example, Amazon's algorithm works, everyone knows that highly rated products land at the top of a search on just about every site, particularly if they have a lot of reviews, right? Like five super five-star reviews, most customers aren't going to be into that, and they definitely won't land at the top of the search results anyway, but 11,000 super positive reviews will right? Also, research has indicated that customers are two to three times more likely to purchase something with a lot of reviews, particularly if they were for the most part positive or the product has an average high score. And I mean, I'm guilty of that, whether I'm buying something or booking a hotel or ordering food or picking a restaurant, that kind of thing. Like it all, it all matters to me. I'm sure you read the reviews too. So Amazon has many faults, but they don't love the fake reviews. Why? 
Because a customer who buys something with a lot of fake positive reviews and then hates the item they purchased is less likely to return to the site. And overall, it's just not a good look for any retailer, but especially Amazon, who, to be diplomatic here, faces a lot of other PR issues in the first place. The problem is that spotting these fake reviews is nearly impossible because the agents are so good at coaching the Jennies. I mean, it's like such a legitimate looking process. Like the way that the Jennies end up on these product pages, it feels so natural. It feels like how a regular customer would shop. So Amazon is like, we're never going to catch these fake reviews. Like when we use our algorithm to try to filter them out, we boot a lot of legitimate reviews too. So Instead, the company has tried to go after the Facebook groups where Jennies are recruited and coached. To them, the agents are the way forward. In July, the company filed a lawsuit against more than 10,000 of these Facebook groups. 10,000 Facebook groups. It's a way bigger problem than I expected. I expected to see like 100, right? Unfortunately, fake Amazon reviews are just the tip of the iceberg. Like I said, you can find them anywhere from eBay to Orbitz to Google Maps. It's really, really hard to spot the fakes. So what's a customer to do? I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't have a real answer here. There is an app you can download called Fake Spot. You can also add it to your browser as a plugin. I added it to Chrome and went on Amazon to check out some stuff. Random things like a white faux fur hat, an AirPods charging case that was listed as Amazon's choice, which I would guess then a lot of people would buy because it would seem like a good item. And a bad fleece cat bed that I would never buy. Um, All of them had a score that was at least one star lower than Amazon's score after fake spot pulled out the fake reviews. And I thought that was really interesting. It also gives that product a grade from A to F in terms of the authenticity of the reviews. You can use fake spot on Best Buy, eBay, Walmart, Sephora, and Shopify. So I went onto the Sephora website. I clicked on a Sephora brand lip gloss. This was just like random that supposedly had four stars. But according to fake spot, the real score was two stars receiving a D grade for the legitimacy of its reviews. I recommend adding this to your browser. Just search fake spot or downloading the app because it's super eye-opening. Seriously, going on Sephora, like I expected fake reviews on Amazon, but going on to Sephora, I kind of couldn't believe how many fake reviews fake spot was finding and how much it was changing the overall rating of those items. Otherwise, outside of apps, we just have to cast a critical eye. These scams are super sneaky, so it's easy to fall for them. Um, But I would say definitely read more than just a few reviews. Ultimately, all we can do is the best we can do. I think it helps to write our own reviews because it helps other people out there break through the noise. But wow, the world beyond e-commerce, just the world as a whole is so complicated, so full of things, like so many things that make it even more difficult to make the right choices. It's important to remember that it's progress, not perfection. Whether we buy a dress that we can't wear with anything else or we fall for some fake good reviews, stuff happens. The best thing we can do is learn from it 
and try to do better in the future. Most of us are harder on ourselves than our worst critics. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe we embody the words of our worst critics, kind of memorize them and turn them up two notches. So they're even more critical. I don't know. But what I do know is that we're all doing our best. And that leads to good things. Even if, you know, there are some weird stops along the way. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, hosted, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even, I don't know, a review on Apple Podcasts. But most importantly, one of the best impactful ways you can show your support of Close Horse is by recommending it to your friends. Because the more people hear it, the more people we have joining our community and making all these big changes. If you'd like to support my work financially, you can learn more at patreon.com slash close horse podcast. Um, that's all for this week. The department, this is my other podcast that I co-host with my friend Kim. It's about trends, whether they're social or style or all these other ways in which humans love a trendy thing. We've been on hiatus for most of the year because I think, you know, we've both been going through a lot of major life changes, uh, but we're back. We're back and we're going for it. And our return episode will be coming out Friday, December 16th. That's only five days away. So please uh, give the department a follow on Instagram and, you know, go check us out on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. All right. I got to get going. Janet is meowing for dinner because it's 6 p.m. here. And I have to cook our dinner, too, which is going to be a Japanese-style brown curry with lots of vegetables. All right. Until next week. Oh, yeah. One last thing. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. All right. See you next week. Bye. (laughs) 